The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The first day of questioning of Katanji Brown Jackson began in earnest today, although a few of the senators were more unctuous than earnest. I think of Ted Cruz, who brought up Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ibram Kendi, authors that the judge was glancingly familiar with, but also would have no bearing on her job as a justice. Sure, had she blurted out, I raised an anti-racist baby and you should too, that would be a problem, could be a problem, but that's not what she said. Here's what she did say about a topic that you know Ted Cruz was going to be interested in. Critical race theory frames all of society as a fundamental and intractable battle uh, between... Wait, he has how that phrase ends on the next page? Between the races, Ted. Between the races. Between the races. It views every conflict as, as a racial conflict. Um... Do you think that's an accurate way of viewing society and the world we live in? Tough question, or it would have been if Katanji Brown Jackson were some kind of nut. As a non-nut, here was her quite good answer. Senator, I don't think so, um, but I've never studied critical race theory, and I've never used it. It doesn't come up in the work that I do as a judge. Hey, you know, it sounds kind of off to me, but also this is relevant. It's irrelevant. Cruz had many more questions on CRT. At one point, he reminisced about their time together at Harvard. Cruz, law class of 96, Katanji Brown-Jackson, Harvard law class of 95. Now, I can't give you every Q&A that all the senators embarked on. I can't even give you every terrible Q&A between senator and nominee. But to get a taste of where Lindsey Graham wanted to take this, I had the GIST staff, hello, Corey, cut together every one of his questions for the first 20 or so minutes of his questioning. Here you go. What faith are you, by the way? Could you fairly judge a Catholic? How important is your faith to you? So uh, on a scale of one to 10, how faithful would you say you are? How would you feel if somebody up here on our side said, you know, you attend church too much for me or your faith is a little bit different to me and they would suggest that it would affect your decision? Would you find that offensive? Uh, Do you know Janice Rogers Brown? What do you know of her? What's her reputation? Did you know that Joe Biden actively filibustered Janice Rogers Brown? You're in the Black Law School Society, right? The Mr. Jeffries thing. Do you remember that whole dust up? As a matter of fact, he's been called by many as very anti-Semitic. He called you skunk who stink up the place. You don't agree with that, do you? Yeah, I didn't play all the answers, but they went something like, I'm a Protestant, I'd rather not put my religiosity on a scale of 1 to 10, and I didn't attend that guy's lecture, but it sounds bad. As an observer, it seemed a pointless exercise. Senator Graham disagreed. My question is very simple. Graham did get into what could arguably called substantive discussions of Guantanamo Bay policy, but the substance was drowned out by, well, there's no nice way to say it, his kind of potty mouth. Just imagine what would happen if people on late night television called you an effing nut. And then? Senator Kennedy, God rest his soul, who beat the crap out of the guy. And finally, and this wasn't even in questions to the judge, but an argument with fellow Senator Dick Durbin. Look at the friggin' Afghan government. Oh, my freaking ears. Oh, Judge Jackson, in the effing case of Griswold versus crappy Connecticut, the freaking Warren court, 
effed up. Judge Jackson was poised and sensible throughout with more questioning tomorrow when she will have to put up with, and this is a legal term, so I don't want to go over your head, but a uh, shit ton of nonsense. On the show today, I pay attention to paying attention to the war in Ukraine. What if attention were not paid? But first, John McWhorter is a columnist, a linguist, a professor, a prolific nonfiction author. I've always loved talking to him on the gist about words and politics. So now we've cabined that discussion, or the opposite, as word definitions would have it. The debut of McWhorter's Quarters up next. John McWhorter is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University, a columnist, the author of Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever, and Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Those came out seven months apart. This means, according to my schedule, we have two months before a new book comes out that hits the bestseller list. Hello, John. Welcome you to, I guess, what we're going to brand and call McWhorter's Quarters. You have a home here on the gist. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? I'm good. And or I'm well, you know, you're a linguist, I should say that. Oh, none of that. No. OK, so here's what I want to talk about, which is the words and framings of activism, a trend I've noticed and I want to see if you agree. So let's just stipulate that activism has have it's always been about framings and phrasings because the right phrase and frame is a way to effectuate change. But I think that lately, framings and phrasings aren't the means to the change, but they're the change that is being asked for. They are the ask. And an example of this, and defund the police comes to mind, and I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about this sentence that I have heard more in the last two years than I have in the 48 years prior to that, which is that policing in America started as a way to enforce slavery. Uh, Jim Clyburn said it, police itself started out as slave patrols. We know that. You could read the headline, The Racist Roots of American Policing, From Slave Patrols to Traffic Stops, NPR. This is the first time Jones publicly talks about how policing in this country started as a way to enforce slavery. And what's interesting to me from a linguistic standpoint is it's both right and wrong, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the fact is that these, um, these, you can say that slave patrols were part of how policing began, although it's vastly oversimplified. It's not true that if you look at today's police forces, you can do a step-by-step trace back and realize that the initial people tasked with that kind of job were supposed to be chasing slaves. That's not true as anybody might guess, but we take the people's point, but the idea that that means that today we must distrust the police because of what people were purportedly doing in the 1840s is a real stretch. And as you're getting at, it's rhetorical. The idea is to associate slave patrols and the cops in people's minds. But you're not supposed to ask exactly why are we supposed to make that association? What are we saying about the motivations of police officers today, many, many years later? So it's a rather brilliant rhetorical feat in a way, because it goes to the gut without addressing you know, lines of logic and A, B, C. When people do that, they are 
making a point in a way that you could think of as effective debating. But I'm not sure it always translates into useful policy. Uh, I think that's all true and insightful. But I also think that if there were just a debate on the word, is it true that policing, police departments have their roots in slave patrols? Well, the Boston Police Department, which I think was the earliest one established, does not. But someplace like the uh, Gaffney, South Carolina, Constable Yerry probably does. There are some police forces that have their roots, whatever that means, in slave patrol. So therefore, policing, does it mean all policing? Or does it mean you can find instances of policing where that is true? And that's where I think the ambiguity is. And I think it's purposeful. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of those things. Does anybody really think that, for example, you have the police force evolving in New York City? And even if you don't know about it, does anybody really think that the way the police evolved in New York City started with people who were assigned to chase, for example, maybe runaway slaves? Is that how it started? And then somehow their billet extended from chasing runaway slaves to just enforcing the general public order. What would that evolution be? Clearly, you can tell some Southern stories, but the idea that the Southern story somehow seeded what went on up North, that there were no police in, for example, Pittsburgh until there were police in Savannah, Georgia, all of it is utterly ridiculous. And so, yeah, there is a historical point to be made. But what this really plays up is that in our moment, there is a totemic status that discussing racism has acquired. And we must discuss racism, and we must discuss that racism is both history and the present. But what it means is that if you have a problem with the cops, it's a useful, although really dangerous rhetorical strategy to say the cops have their roots in racism and racist abuse. That's where someone's going to go because that is something that's considered the most powerful indictment of any person or any phenomenon in society. But we have to be able to see that for what it is because we do have a cop problem in this country. But the reason that we have the cop problem is only very tenuously connected to the fact that in some mostly southern cities, there was a certain connection between slave patrols and what became the general constabulary. It's a real it's a real stretch. Brilliant, brilliant talking, but a real stretch. Yeah. And I've studied some of the problems of the Toronto Police Department just to get a baseline of comparison. And it basically correlates to the availability of guns in a society. But there are plenty of activists. And if you read the Toronto Star, there are almost as many stories of police abuse in the Toronto Star as there are in the uh, Buffalo Daily News on roughly the other side of the border. And of course, Canada did not start in with the idea of chasing down runaway slaves. <laughs> no, it's not likely at all. And I mean, really, if you think about what things were like in the typical American, or I'm going to take a wild guess, Canadian metropolis, roughly in the early 1800s, there was a general growing concern for maintaining public order. And that, of course, often concentrated upon what were considered lowly people. But in New York, for example, the police forces abusing the subalterns was as much about the Irish as it was about black people. And yes, power, it, power corrupts and power is dangerous. But the idea that you go from what Harriet Tubman was battling to today's police forces and the terrible things that happen just doesn't work. And of course, yeah. Look at Toronto and then compare it 
to Buffalo. Look at how many, for example, non-Black people are killed all the time under you know, conditions ominously similar to those that Black people are killed under. The sad fact is that um, I hate to strike a, the media doesn't want you to know pose because that gets old. And I don't think it's that anybody doesn't want you to know. But there's a certain narrative that enlightened people think they're supposed to be supporting. For just about any terrible thing that happens to usually a black male at the hands of the cops, there is an equivalent story that happened to a white person, and often two or three, that you simply never hear about. I am aware of two exceptions. What happened to little Tamir Rice, the pre-adolescent who was killed for wielding a little pop gun? There's no white story quite equivalent to that, although there's some that you can almost bring. Nothing like Ahmaud Arbery happened to any white person that, I, that I'm aware of. For any other case, any other egregious case that you know of, that happened to somebody white too, but we just aren't told. And yet, I don't think that the white cases will lead anybody to say the people who killed Daniel Shaver originally were the people who were supposed to be rounding up black slaves. It's something that's said because of the black issue, which is grievous, but I think hideously oversimplified. Do you know who Thomas Sedario is? Does the name mean anything to you? Not that name, no. Who? That's kind of my point. You do know who the name um, Adam Toledo is. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. the, he's the uh, Chicago kid who was uh, killed after maybe dropping his gun a split second before the police opened fire. Well, he uh, is the one who's almost like Tamir Rice, but it's not quite the same thing. But yeah, exactly. But he is. Well, he is. It, it was a real gun and um, he's Hispanic and there were he was Hispanic and there were many protests over him. But I raise T.J. Sedario because uh, about a week ago, maybe two weeks when we talk, he was shot in the back by Philadelphia police. He's 12. He's dead. He had a gun. It's very much like Adam T Toledo. And the interesting thing, this is a story in Philadelphia. You know, people, it didn't really reach beyond Philadelphia, say, to the ears of someone like you who'd be interested to know about it. But there were no protests. There was no civic clamoring for reform. The police said, we're doing our investigation. Um, and the populace seems to be accepting it. So that is... There, there are often many similar cases where a white person is killed and there's almost no attention paid. Yeah, that's exactly it. As in, I, I'm from Philadelphia. I do not follow local Philadelphia news. I openly admit it. I have too much to do. And that means that I didn't hear about this. And I'm only up the road in New York City. And I don't think that I'm unique. And yet, let's face it, if that were a black person, it would be you know, probably the next most covered thing in the news right now you know, under Ukraine. And there is something wrong with that because it creates a perception, especially in the black community, that the police are uniquely poised to murder black people, as opposed to what I really think it is, is that the police end up killing too many poor people and a disproportionate number of black people are poor. But goodness, if you could do, I wouldn't want to see this, but if you could do a montage of the full range of police murders that happen month after month after month, I think it would really change the way many people are inclined to talk about race in this country. There's a cop problem, but it's not as racialized as many people think. Okay, so I want to get to a couple of other phrases tied up to activism that I have isolated as being simultaneously totalizing and particular. Here is one. Democrats want to defund the police. Well, 
It is true. There are Democrats. Cori Bush right now will tell you, democratically elected representative from Missouri, that she wants to defund the police. But it's also untrue that most Democrats want to defund the police. So this is another one of those phrases where, well, what does Democrats mean? Does it mean that you can find one or two? Or does it mean that in general, it's true of them? I think there's a way that people hear that and listen to that. And naturally, it would be to think that that is a statement that is true of all Democrats, right? Yeah, there's a tacit sense that maybe real Democrats want that that there are Mm. some that don't want it. But if you are really walking the walk and talking the talk, you want to defund the police. In the same way as I think there's a sense that real Black people want, for example, the police to be defunded, consider, you know, America to have begun in 1619, etc. So, of course, all Black people don't. But there's a sense that you get that real Black people do, that this is the real shit, so to speak. And that can distort discussion. I was thinking that it was most likely to be wielded by Republicans or opponents of Democrats trying to paint all Democrats in a way that is only true of some. And in this case, I think a minority of Democrats, if you look at the polling. It can be both sides, I think, because I think many Democrats are inclined to think that if you are really one of us, if you are really looking beyond the way it is now, and if you are a genuine progressive, then, of course, you believe in this sort of thing. But yes, it can also be used to tar the other party as believing in extremist things that you would like people to vote against. Yeah. And so it ends up working in a pernicious way on both sides. Is this a flaw of language that a word could mean some or all? (laughs) It is something that is built into the system. Any word is tending in terms of its general resonances to be interpreted as more or less. My favorite example of this is reduce. Reduce is to again lead. Reduce used to either mean to take something back to the way it was more or to take something back to the way it was less. And so you could reduce an army to its former glory. It could go both ways. You just knew that word was going to tip in one direction or another. It happened to tip to meaning to lessen, to diminish. So when you hear something like to defund and you know, technically it's supposed to mean take fewer, take make there be fewer funds. The natural intention is to think e- that it means to defund completely. That is the way our cognition works. We don't do well with gray. That doesn't work. Right. We want black or white. Huh. Okay. Maybe this is a counterexample or maybe not. I was, uh, I, as you know, I'm fascinated by many of these issues. And one is the racial wealth gap. And it is real and it is enormous and things need to be done about it. If you read different uh, activist organizations, you will come to different understandings of what the best way to deal with this is. Now, I was looking at Demos, which is a, uh, a fairly left-wing, maybe a very left-wing organization. And they have a report called The Asset Value of Whiteness, Understanding the Racial Wealth Gap. And the chapters are, I will read them to you. Attending college does not close the racial wealth gap. Raising children in a two-parent household does not close the racial wealth gap. Working full-time does not close the racial wealth gap. Spending less does not close the racial wealth gap. So what they're doing is essentially addressing um, critiques of the behaviors of maybe black people to explain the racial wealth gap. And they are saying that those things, even if addressed, don't close the racial wealth gap. But the way I think of how most people would hear the phrase close the racial wealth gap, it means something like narrow the racial wealth gap. 
if you told people, you know, attending college doesn't close the racial wealth gap, but after 10 years, uh, the college graduation rates of black people have equaled or exceeded the college graduation rates of white people. And among those people, wealth of white people was at 200000 but the wealth of black people went from $6,000 to 175000 Did you close the racial wealth gap? I would think the vast majority of people would say, yeah, we closed the racial wealth gap. But this report and those arguing on the side of this report would say, no, it didn't close the racial wealth gap. I think, again, because of the totalizing nature of the word close, close the racial wealth gap. That's an interesting way of looking at it. The way I see it is I would pull the camera back and think that the very phrasing of it as close as opposed to narrow illustrates that tendency that we have to think of extremes rather than to acknowledge that, for example, all social change that's at all interesting happens slowly. And that the issue is not to eliminate the the racial wealth gap. That would be great. And we imagine that that could happen someday, but to narrow it considerably, in which case, of course, all of those things clearly are good things, beneficial things. You wish to narrow the racial wealth gap. It isn't put that way. It's put as close. And so it's that same kind of thinking that takes an intermediate eatering word like reduce and makes it go to some other extreme. And we, we see this in a lot of the way these sorts of things are discussed, that you have this extreme put in front of you as where it's supposed to go, when everybody knows deep down that that couldn't happen anytime in probably our lifetimes. And that what we're really talking about is creating a process. It's a useful kind of rhetoric in a way if you wish to keep people aroused, maybe for the innocent reason of wanting people to always be seeking the struggle. Close the gap. And if there's something that never seems to quite close the gap, this reminds me of welfare reform, where the idea was to make a certain segment of poor women less poor. There was a certain kind of person who argued it as we're going to make them middle class. Who thought that all those people were ever going to be middle class? Today, the verdict on welfare reform is almost none of them became middle class. I don't know if anybody was expecting that in 1996. The idea was just to make them closer to middle class than they were before. We tend to think in these sorts of extremes. John McWhorter's professor of linguistics at Columbia and his New York Times column is essential. Uh, the subscription version of it comes into my inbox uh, with usually the sound that it makes is even more high-pitched and happy than the usual boong I have all my other emails set to. He's the author of Nine Nasty Words and Woke Racism. John, thank you again. It is McWhorter's quarters. You make it such. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Writing in the Chicago Tribune today, Linus Kahola, director of the Eastern European Studies Center in Vilnius, Lithuania, or as I guess they call it in Vilnius, the study center, wrote of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's a comedian-elected president, and he's proved to be an inspirational leader. Western democracies have also shown unprecedented unity in response to Russian aggression. Yet, if fatigue kicks in or attention span declines, and Ukraine ultimately struggles to defend itself, democracy and freedom will suffer. 
The idea that U.S. attention is fundamental to Ukrainian success is everywhere and kind of disturbing in an age of TikTok. Now, I will say the two things aren't entirely unconnected, but the correlation is a lot weaker than the pundits would have you believe. Here was E.J. Dionne writing in the Washington Post two weeks ago, how long is our attention span? The question seems almost sacrilegious. That was the lead. He goes on to quote Ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. We have been astonished so often about matters we thought were of vital importance that just faded from public view. Yes, and then what? Then the war would go away? Putin would necessarily win? What Ukrainians need is Western assistance and Western sympathies in order to secure Western Javelin missiles and British N-laws, next generation light anti-tank weapons. Once they have those, attention is great, but only insofar as it prompts politicians to fund the next round of javelins and N-laws. Don't get me wrong, if the U.S. didn't care at all, if there was no support for the Ukrainians, politicians wouldn't be voting for a record $13 billion in military aid. But they did vote for the aid, and Ukraine now has it. And Ukraine is going to continue to get it because the U.S. has determined that arming the Ukrainians is in the U.S. interest. So in treaties to keep the Ukrainians in your prayers and not have compassion fatigue, they're unrealistic. Of course, we become habituated to everything, including things that were once the most gripping stories. But also, of course, American attention matters much less than Americans admit or think, or is put forward by Americans who are writing for the benefit of other Americans who are paying attention. Americans haven't paid a lick of attention to a lot of wars, like the war in Yemen, and yet the fighting goes on. One frustration with wars that never seem to end, like the Congo Civil War didn't, is that no one was paying attention. But now it's the opposite. Paying attention is what is fundamental to Ukrainians keeping up the fight. It's a funny thing about attention. Causes and ends wars. It's part of the overestimation of the effect that our consciousness has on the things we pay attention to. The inverse of out of sight, out of mind. Now, relatedly, here's the Newsweek writer, Baya Ungar Sargon, on Bill Maher's show last week. Now, here's the interesting thing that people who are disconnected from the news, as well as people who are connected from the news, don't know, which is that on Monday, Putin laid out three conditions for immediately stopping the campaign in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, that war there. The three conditions were that Ukraine give up trying to become part of NATO, that the Crimea be declared part of Russia, and that the Donbas region be recognized as independent. In other words, Putin said, if you recognize the actual status quo, I'm willing to stop this immediately. Yeah, well, Putin says a lot of lies. But here, she argues that a media blackout of Putin's supposed peace plan stands between war and peace. The two sides of this conflict on Monday of this week said that there is room to negotiate and agreed on much of the territory. You did not hear about that in any of the mainstream media except for a tiny bit here, a tiny bit there. Why aren't the headlines saying the two sides are willing to accept some of the same conditions? Because the headline writers don't want to lie to their readers. The implication is that if only the headline reading public would know what was really being said, It could affect the war. It could win the war. It could end the war. Our attention, once more, imbued with wonder-working powers that don't really exist. I pay attention 
to the war in Ukraine for a lot of reasons. But I don't think one is that the Ukrainian army depends on my attention. I pay attention to a lot of stories that I can't really affect just by the very dint of paying attention. We in the West are compelled by examples of cruelty of the Russian aggressors and bravery of the Ukrainians. So we're paying attention to the Ukrainian resistance. The Ukrainians aren't resisting because we're paying attention. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, decries the fact that if you read from one book intended for four-year-olds during a confirmation hearing... All of a sudden, you're an effing nut. Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions' filer of amicus briefs. Or maybe they're amicus. Jury is still out on that. The Gist is presented by Libsyn in conjunction with AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depperu And thanks for listening. 